These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Once upon a time, a group of talented people made a movie about a giant gorilla who had eyes for a pretty blonde woman. The beast is brought to New York against his will and put on stage, secured with chains. He escapes, killing any New Yorker who gets in his way until he finds the girl of his dreams. Once in his hand, he climbs to the top of the tallest building, the Empire State Building, and it doesn't end well. His name was King Kong, and he was brought to the public on March 2, 1933. He would become a massive star, and his name would be as well-known, or maybe more well-known, than any Hollywood actor in history. His first film was only the beginning. Today I have the story of King Kong's release and all that followed on the 203rd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee Coffee with Jeff. Sunday morning to you. My name is Jeff, and for the next half hour or so, I'll, I'll be your storyteller. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, I'm Jeff, and I spend about two weeks or so researching a topic that I would like to know more about, and I, and I write that into a hopefully engaging story. At least, that's my plan. This is the third and last part of the story of King Kong. You know, I didn't intend it to be in three parts. It just worked out that way. I just kept finding more information that I thought was interesting, and that's what it's all about. Me. (laughs) I just write what interests me, and hopefully others find it interesting as well. So this last part's a tad long, so why don't we get right into it. Here's what happened to King Kong upon its release, and all that happened after. Wonderful, the stuff for which movies were made. Adventure, to make you wonder if it's true, while your eyes convince you that it is. Truly, the thrill of thrills. Don't miss it this time. I want to tell you about a movie. It's about a group of men who find an island that is inhabited by prehistoric animals, dinosaurs and such. After a few adventures on the island, one of the creatures is brought back to civilization. It escapes and causes havoc. That's the basic plot of The Lost World from 1925, based on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's 1912 novel of the same name. In the film, a brontosaurus is brought back to London with the idea of being put on display. The effects for this film were done by the same man who did the effects for King Kong, Willis O'Brien, known to his friends as Obi. The makers of The Lost World, First National Pictures, took notice of the similarities. Concerned of a lawsuit... RKO at one point wanted Cooper to cut the whole New York end of the film and find a way to end the story on Skull Island. Eventually, they solved the problem with cash. They bought the rights to The Lost World from First National Pictures. 
Even with that, they were concerned about the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle estate, Doyle dying just three years earlier. They thought about having the credits read, based on a story by Edgar Wallace and Marion C. Cooper, adapted from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World. Somehow, Cooper was able to make a deal with the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle estate that allowed him to take Doyle's name off the credits. As the finishing touches were being put on King Kong, there were still some at RKO that didn't believe in the film. But in March 1933, screenings of the film were held for owners of movie theaters that might want to show the movie. The reaction to the film was so overwhelmingly positive, even those who had doubts had to agree that this film was going to be a smash. Samuel Lyon Rothesfeld, known to his friends as Roxy, had an idea. He owned the two famous New York theaters, the 6200-seat Radio City Music Hall and across the street, the 3700-seat RKO Roxy. Against the advice of his associates, he opened the film at both theaters for its East Coast premiere on Thursday, March 2, 1933. Tickets were $0.35 cents for a matinee and $0.75 cents for an evening show. The night opened with a huge stage show called Jungle Rhythms. A newspaper read, Jungle Rhythms, Brilliant Musical Production, Entire Singing and Dancing Assembly at Music Hall in New Roxy, Spectacular Dance Rhythms by Ballet Corps and Rockettes, Soloists, Chorus, Symphonies, Orchestras, Company of 500, big enough for the two greatest theaters at the same time. Now this was in the days of the Great Depression, but even so, every one of its shows were sold out during the first four days. Crowds of people lined up around the block wanting to see King Kong. The film grossed $89,000 in those first days. Its official premiere was at Grumman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood on March 23, 1933. Outside the theater was a huge bust of King Kong. The cast and crew attended. Before the film, the audience was entertained by a 17-act stage show. The highlight was a performance by a troupe of African-American dancers. It was called The Dance of the Sacred Ape. When the film was over, about the only person that had a problem with it was Fay Ray. She thought her screams were a little over the top and found them distracting. The film opened nationwide on April 10, 1933, and the reviews were almost all positive. During its first run, it turned a profit of $65,000, saving RKO from bankruptcy. Sadly, those that saw King Kong in 1933 would be the last to see the complete film until the 1970s. Now, this was in the days before television. In those days, if you missed a film in the theater, you were out of luck. There was no way to see it once it was gone. Most films just disappeared after their first run, never to be seen again. But those that were really successful, such as Kong, would be re-released. Kong would be brought back in 1938, 1942, 1946, 1952, and 1956, each time to a great box office success. But each one of these re-releases of Kong would be a bit shorter than the original. You see, in 1933, when Kong was made, there was no production code, but that changed by 1938. The Hayes Motion Picture Production Code began in 1934 and it had strict rules about what could and couldn't be shown in theaters. The code was a problem for King Kong. 
There was a scene where a brontosaurus chews on a crewman, and that was thought to be a little too graphic. It was also too much to have the great ape put a native of Skull Island in his mouth or have them being stepped on. When Kong attempts to take Fay Ray's clothes off and then sniffs his finger, nope, that wasn't allowed. In New York, a man gets stepped on and that had to be cut. And of course, there's a scene where Kong grabs a woman while climbing a building, thinking it's Andero, but when he finds out it isn't, drops her to her death onto the street below. In all, about six minutes were cut. The sad part of it was, Archeo did not preserve copies of the negative or release prints, so for years, those scenes were considered lost. In the early 70s, a complete 16mm print was found in Philadelphia, allowing a complete version to be created, even though some of the scenes were from a very poor copy. In the 1980s, a print located in the UK contained better versions of the missing footage. But it wasn't until 2005, after a six-year nationwide search for the best surviving material, that a fully digital restoration utilizing 4K resolution scanning was completed by Warner Brothers. They even put back the four-minute overture at the beginning of the film. But back to 1933. With the success of Kong, RKO executives quickly pulled Marion C. Cooper into a meeting and suggested a sequel. Cooper had no problem with the idea, and he thought he could make the next film bigger and better, as well as heading off any imitators who might try to steal the idea. However, RKO had a stipulation. They wanted the film before Christmas of 1933, just nine months after the original was released. And it had to be made for about half of what was spent on Kong. You see, only in recent history, probably starting with The Godfather and Star Wars, were sequels taken seriously. Before that, a sequel was just a quick money grab and was almost always made on the cheap. One day I'll talk about the original five Planet of the Apes films, in which each sequel was made for less than the previous one. Getting together with Ruth Rose, Ernest Scholdshack, and Willis O'Brien, they began working on story ideas. A few decisions were made right away. Bay Ray and Bruce Cabot would not be involved. They had moved on to other things. That meant the characters of Ann and Jack would not be in the film. Also, King Kong wouldn't be in it either since he had died. But what if he had a son back on Skull Island? Rose knew there was no sense in trying to outdo King Kong, and she said, if you can't make it bigger, make it funnier. Since Robert Armstrong was more than happy to reprise his role, the film would focus on Carl Denham. He would be broke, dealing with lawsuits and such, and feeling guilt over Kong's death. The characters of Captain Englehorn and Charlie the Cook would return as well. Carl Denham would return to Skull Island to look for treasure. Along the way, he would meet a young girl, Hilda, played by Helen Mack, and the greedy Niles Hellstorm, played by John Marston who killed Hilda's father. The group would meet Kong's son, who was only about 12 feet tall, and they would become friends. First, they would save Little Kong from quicksand, and eventually, Little Kong would save them. The RKO board loved the new script, and they gave the green light. Now, Cooper probably had little to do with the making of Son of Kong. Apparently, he told Shack. Make Son of Kong. I don't care what you make because anything called Son of Kong was going to make money. This was because Cooper had a new job. David O. Selznick had left RKO. 
not being able to handle the pressure of running a studio, and Marion C. Cooper had taken over. That meant he had little time to work on films such as Son of Kong. Ernest Schuldschak would direct the film himself. Also a change was the lack of work by Willis O'Brien. You see, it was a dark time for the animator. As I mentioned in the last episode, his wife had killed their two sons with a shotgun. He also didn't appreciate the campiness and fun of the new film. And then there was the fact that when he'd made Kong, he was pretty much left alone to do his own thing. But with Son of Kong, Solchak wanted to be involved with the effects, which angered O'Brien. O'Brien rarely showed up, and his assistant, Buzz Gibson, did most of the work. In the end, O'Brien asked for his name to be taken off the credits, but the producers refused. For the rest of his life, O'Brien would refuse to talk about Son of Kong. Now, while in production, they called the film Jamboree to keep people from knowing they were making another Kong picture. For Armstrong, he appreciated the sequel more than the original. For me personally, the role was better than before, Armstrong said. It gave me a great deal more character, swell dialogue, and love scenes. Besides Cooper and O'Brien, the film was created by basically the same crew that worked on the original. In fact, a lot of them didn't consider it a new job, just a continuation of the job they had already been doing. And while Faye Ray wasn't in the film, her screams certainly were. They used some of the screams she had made for Kong. Now, just like in King Kong, the little Kong doesn't appear until 43 minutes into the picture. And since the film is only 70 minutes long, that didn't give the ape a lot of screen time. It opened on December 22, 1933, just 8 months and 20 days after the original. The studio didn't bother with too much promotion. Uh, they didn't really need to since Kong was still in the theaters. An ad read, All the thrills of King Kong, but none of the horrors. A real treat for children. The reviews were lukewarm, but for a while it seemed it was going to do just as well as the original having a great opening weekend. But it didn't have the staying power of King Kong, and in the end was a disappointment financially. Although it made money, it wasn't what Archeo was hoping for, and they decided Big Eight Pictures were over. Marion C. Cooper left Archeo the following spring after making two more films to complete his contract. But then in 1949, Cooper had an idea for another large ape picture. He would bring back together the original group, him producing Ruth Rose writing, Willis O'Brien in charge of special effects, and Ernest B. Shuldjack directing. This new RKO film was called Mighty Joe Young. Cooper originally wanted to use a real gorilla for the film, but ended up using the same stop-motion effects he had used on Kong. Mighty Joe Young tells the story of a young woman, Jill Young, living on her father's ranch in Africa. They raise the title character, a large gorilla, from an infant. Years later, Jill brings him to Hollywood, hoping to make her fortune and save the family homestead. The film even starred Robert Armstrong, not as Carl Denham, but as a Denham-like character called Max O'Hara. For this special effects, O'Brien hired a new young animator to be his assistant. His name was Ray Harryhausen. It was Harryhausen who ended up doing much of the actual work. I was the only one who seemed to be turning out any footage that was usable, Harryhausen said. I was left alone. I started to eat celery and carrots to get into the mood of the gorilla. I'd time some of the movements with a stopwatch. 
I did nine-tenths of the animation, but it was Obi's picture because he designed the thing. He made detailed storyboards of the broad bits that was my guide. For Cooper, this film started out as something totally different. I wanted to do something close to a true cartoon strip with unreal dialogue in black and white style, no shading, Cooper said. But I lost my nerve and didn't do what I intended. It was a childlike picture, but it should have been done more broadly and played more for laughs. In the end, Mighty Joe Young barely made a profit. But the tale of King Kong is far from over. In 1962, Willis O'Brien had a new idea for a picture. He wrote Cooper. I have a suggestion for one based on the legend of the Abominable Snowman. Why not have Carl Denham find one in the Himalayas? O'Brien had another picture idea called King Kong vs. Frankenstein, and that he presented to RKO, in which King Kong battles a giant Frankenstein's monster. It was renamed King Kong vs. Ginkgo to avoid any problems with Universal Pictures. By this time, RKO wasn't making any more films, so producer John Beck began looking for a studio. George Worthing was hired to work on the screenplay, and the title was changed to King Kong vs. Prometheus. One studio that took an interest was the Japanese company Toho, famous for the Godzilla films. After all, it was King Kong that had inspired Godzilla, and Toho had long wanted to make a King Kong picture. After buying the script, they replaced Frankenstein with Godzilla, and Godzilla's original director, Ishiro Honda, was hired to direct. For this, King Kong wouldn't be stop motion, but would be a man in a gorilla suit. One of the main reasons for selling off the rights to Kong to Toho was that Archeo Pictures was falling apart in selling off all their assets. They basically never recovered from Howard Hughes' ownership a decade earlier. They even let Aurora Model Making Company sell King Kong models to go along with their Universal Monster creations. The deal with Toho was all done behind Willis O'Brien's back, and he would never receive credit for the idea. Willis O'Brien died on November 8, 1962 at the age of 76, just two months after King Kong vs. Godzilla was released. When Cooper found out about the film, he wasn't happy. He wrote to a friend, I was indignant when some Japanese company made a belittling thing to a creative mind called King Kong vs. Godzilla. I believe they stooped so low as to use a man in a gorilla suit, which I have spoken out against so often in the early days of King Kong. The thing is, Cooper always believed he had the complete rights to King Kong and hired an attorney to sue the production. Cooper wrote a letter to producer Robert A. Bendick, who he worked with on the 1952 film This Is Cinerama. My hassle is about King Kong. I created the character long before I came to RKO and always believed that I retained subsequent picture rights and other rights. I sold to RKO the rights to make one original picture, King Kong, and also later Son of Kong, but that was all. But it turned out that after 30 years, much of the evidence that Cooper needed to prove his point were lost or destroyed, so the suit never went through. The film King Kong vs. Godzilla became the most successful Godzilla film to date. They would follow it up in 1967 with King Kong Escapes. In 1976, a King Kong remake was made by Dino De Laurentiis. There are two stories on how this came about. Dino De Laurentiis said that his daughter had a poster of the original King Kong in her bedroom and he would see it every morning when he woke her. 
When the CEO of Paramount Pictures, Barry Diller, suggested doing a monster picture, he thought of a Kong remake. On the other hand, Michael Eisner, who was then an executive for ABC, said he watched the original film on television and was struck with the idea for a remake. He contacted Dino De Laurentiis to work on the project. Laurentiis went behind his back, according to Eisner, and made a deal with Paramount. Of course, all this ended up in court. The biggest selling point of the new King Kong was a 40-foot-tall, 6.5-ton mechanical Kong. It cost over a half million dollars to make, and it didn't work. Its screen time in the film is less than 15 seconds, and it really stands out. Now, I have to admit, I enjoyed the 76 version. I mean, come on, we have the dude, Jeff Bridges, the beautiful Jessica Lange as Dwan in her first film role, and Charles Grodin plays the bad guy. What more do you want? Yeah, it's campy, but I like the way it reimagined Kong in a modern-day setting. It was followed up by the incredibly bad King Kong Lives. And then, of course, there's the Peter Jackson 2005 version. I have to admit, I wasn't a big fan. Oh, it was beautifully shot and well-acted, but it's just way too long. Jackson took about three hours to tell the same story that Cooper did in about an hour and a half. And Cooper had cut the spider pit sequence because he said it slowed the film down. But Jackson shot that scene, and in my opinion, it goes on forever! And it has nothing to do with the actual story of King Kong and Andero. And then in 2014, we have Kong Skull Island, a new take on the Kong legend that I really enjoyed. It was done by the makers of the second American remake of Godzilla, and this is leading up to a Godzilla vs. Kong due out next year. And, of course, over the years, there have been models, toys, cartoons, comic books, video games, theme park rides, and more, all based around King Kong. There was a 1976 British film called Queen Kong. The British comedy TV series The Goonies made an episode called Kitty Kong. Kong made an appearance in the Beatles' Yellow Submarine. It was parodied on The Simpsons with King Homer. Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention recorded an instrumental called King Kong. The Kinks recorded a song called King Kong. And then there was even a Broadway musical in 2012 called King Kong Alive on Broadway. And I'm sure I'm just scratching the surface of all the times King Kong has made his way into world culture. Marion C. Cooper died on April 21, 1973. I wonder if he ever realized the cultural impact his creation had on the world. Ernest P. Soldsack quit directing right after Mighty Joe Young, his eyesight failing horribly. He died on December 23, 1979, about a year and a half after his wife, the writer Ruth Rose, passed away. Faye Ray kept on acting through the 1980s. She has 123 IMDb credits to her name, yet to many, the only thing she is known for was King Kong. And you know what? I've watched many interviews with Faye Ray, and it never bothered her. She was the last surviving member of Kong, dying on August 8, 2004, at the age of 96. What's he saying? Uh, he's saying uh, we wouldn't dream of sacrificing the blue-haired woman. Oh, well, isn't that... Whoa! Mm-hmm. Now we don't want to kill him. Shoot him around the groin and belly. Hey, Homer, cut it out. Come on, quit eating me. Ow! Nice shot, Carl. 
Ladies and gentlemen, in his native land, he was a king, but he comes before you in chains for your own amusement. Presenting Homer, the eighth wonder of the world. Wow, look at the size of that platform. A little bit before I go, there is something you might not know about the original King Kong. No trailers exist for this film. Oh, you might find a few on YouTube that say that they're the original trailer, but they're all from later releases of the film. The original trailer is gone forever. Now, I started this about a month and a half ago, talking about the early life of Marion C. Cooper. I thought I'd talk a little bit about his other accomplishments. He has 168 producing credits to his name, including such films as Dr. Cyclops, The Three Godfathers, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, Rio Grande and The Quiet Man. He formed a production company with the legendary John Ford and was involved with the invention of Cinerama. When he died, his ashes were scattered at sea with full military honors. Marion C. Cooper lived quite an unbelievable life. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment Podcast. Links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link at the Coffee with Jeff website. If you've got a few extra coins and would like to help keep this podcast going, you can do so by contributing to my Patreon page. Just go to coffeewithjeff.com for more information. And if you could tell your friends about it, that'd be great. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. Say hi if you want to. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I'd love you to join. You're encouraged to suggest stories on any of these platforms. I'd like to thank my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Thanks, and I'll be back in two weeks with something that isn't King Kong. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee.
Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Thank you.